Once upon the midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my books a cease of sorrow. Sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here, for evermore. And the silken sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating to some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more. Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer, sir said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore, but the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, Fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token. And the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore? This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber, turning all my soul within me burning. Soon again I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mine of lord or lady perched above my chamber door. Perched upon the bust of palace just above my chamber door. Perched and sat and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven thou, I said, art short no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Much I marvelled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. 
For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such name as Nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the placid bust, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther then he uttered, not a feather then he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before, on the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, Doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock in store, caught from some unhappy master whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, nevermore. But the raven still beguiling all my fancy into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then upon the velvet sinking I betook myself to linking, fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This I sat, Engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press. Ah, nevermore. Then, methought, the air grew denser. Perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, O oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or the tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted on this desert land, enchanted on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead, tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven, nevermore, prophet, Said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within that distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked, upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. 
quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted. Nevermore. Adventure in the world of October with October State of Mind, the podcast that transports you to October and spooky season. No matter what month it is before you put those headphones on, it's always October in here. We've got everything spooky, ooky, kooky, and creepy to chill you to the bone and give you that spooky, joyous feeling all year long. Creepy true stories, scary movies, creepy news, haunted buildings, and much, much more, all right here on October State of Mind. I'm your host, your ghost host, Ricky Schroeder. Rick or treat, if you're nasty. Our poem today was, and if you don't know this, I'm a little ashamed of you, but it's okay, I'm always happy to educate, The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. I contemplated reading it for the Halloween episode since it's a poem so closely associated with Halloween, but right there in the second stanza of the poem it says, In the Bleak December. So I thought, why not save it till December? I also read it in an English accent. Why? Because I wanted to. I read it first in my American accent, and it just didn't sound right. It doesn't have the same gravitas... I don't know what accent that was. Uh, It doesn't have the same gravitas as an English accent, so I did it. How is everyone? Well, it's most certainly always October in here. We can also admit it maybe a little bit December for this episode as well. Now, most people associate December and the holidays with happy, bright, shiny things. There's also sort of a spookiness to the holiday season. It's known as the second spooky season of the year. I mean, it's right there in one of your favorite Christmas songs. There'll be parties for roasting, marshmallows for toasting, and carolers out in the snow. There'll be scary ghost stories. Scary ghost stories. And tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. Yeah. That lyric never really hit me growing up singing the song. You know how you just kind of learn lyrics to songs and then years later you'll be singing it and you'll finally actually hear the words that you're singing? That definitely happened with Most Wonderful Time of the Year for me. It was like, wait, 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 hold up. 
I've been singing the words scary ghost stories in relation to Christmas for all of these years. My interest is piqued. I mean, we also have Christmas Carol right there in front of our faces. It's a heartwarming Christmas tale, yes? Sure, but it's also a ghost story. Scrooge is visited by three ghosts of Christmas past and present and future, and by the ghost of Jacob Marley, Robert and Jacob Marley, if you're more used to the Muppet Christmas Carol version, which, let's be real, is the best version. Thinking back on when I first saw the Muppet Christmas Carol, it actually used to really scare me. That huge ghost of Christmas future in its black shrouded robe with its long spindly fingers saying nothing, just pointing. And then Scrooge seeing his name on a tombstone. Terrifying. I mean, even Santa Claus, the man himself, is super creepy when you think about it. I mean, let alone an old man sneaking into your house at night and leaving you gifts and eating your cookies. Oh my god, which reminds me, I haven't thought about this in so long. Wow. Uh, <laughs> sorry, side, side tangent for a second. Okay, so back when I was, you know, a good church-going boy growing up, we used to go to the church service that had the coffee and donuts after, and, you know, the kids would play in the gym and adults would socialize and whatnot. I mean, church wasn't even worth it unless we went to get the donuts afterwards. Come on. Anyway, I couldn't have been older than maybe five or six. And I remember I picked up my little plate, went to put a couple donut holes on it, maybe a cookie or two, and I went to sit on the elevated platform at the far side of the gym that acted as a stage, a gymatorium, if you will. My little legs were dangling off the side of the platform as I quietly munched on a donut hole, surveying the crowd. Kids running around, grown-ups gossiping as only churchgoers can. I don't remember where my parents or my sister were in this specific situation. But I remember all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this old man appeared right in front of me. Not appeared in like in a ghostly way, but like I didn't see him until he was right in front of me. He had to have been at least in his 80s. He looked at me. And then without a word, snatched the remainder of my donut holes and cookies off of my plate. And maintaining direct eye contact with me, began to eat them in front of my face. It, it happened so fast. I, I, didn't, I didn't know what to do or think or say. I, but I was very upset. <laughs> I felt my eyes tear up. And, and as they did, this man began to laugh at me, at what he'd done. And then he walked away, all without saying a word. I, I remember that laugh being one of the most evil laughs I had ever heard. You know, to my five-year-old self, it felt like the devil himself had infiltrated this church coffee and donuts gathering just to steal my food. I was really distraught. Obviously, it became a defining traumatic moment in my life, and I mean, maybe why I don't like sharing my food now. <laughs> hmm. But think about that. How creepy and horrible is that for an old man to go and steal a little kid's donuts and laugh in their face about it, all while at church? Church! It was the devil, I tell you. <laughs> anyway, how do, how do we get here? Oh, yeah, um... 
Old man eating your cookies. Yeah, that's it. So Santa sneaks into your house, eats your cookies, and leaves you gifts. Everyone's all happy when Santa does it, but when my grandpa does it, he gets the cops called on him. Also, speaking of further childhood traumas, just, you know, that idea of reward and punishment, that system of Christmas. If you're good, you'll get gifts. If you're bad, you'll get coal. I was even told at some point by someone, it may have been my parents, maybe one of my teachers, but I was told that elves were always watching to see if you were being bad or good. I remember standing in my kitchen at night in front of our glass sliding door, feeling eyes all over me. I remember peering out through the glass to see if I could catch a glimpse of beady eyes darting between bushes or hiding amongst the trees that were spying on me. It didn't feel very joyous. Once again, it's all fine and dandy for elves to be spying on children, but when my grandpa does it, everyone seems to have some sort of an issue. I'm just kidding, my grandpa never did those things. Someone's grandpa probably did, though. You know, this this concept of the naughty or nice and the reward or punishment, it's a nice segue into my next topic. The oh-so-important reason for the season to me. But instead of taking advantage of, of that perfect segue, let's hear a story. We've already kind of gotten down to the spooky business, uh, but for the sake of tradition, which is what the holidays are all about anyway, let's get down to the spooky business with a story from someone who goes by the internet username that's slightly raven. When she got back, I was dead. I was visiting my parents over the holidays. My mother loves nothing more than to break open a bottle of cheap Chardonnay, Kendall Jackson if it's a fancy night, and watch some home videos of us kids when we were little. It's pretty harmless, if a little embarrassing, so we indulged the habit with her. We were watching videos of my sister and me dancing and singing and generally hamming it up for the camera when I was four or five-ish. We watched like four of these videos, and I noticed in every one that I talked to the camera about my younger brother. I keep saying things like, when I was ten and my brother was seven, we did this, or when I was eight and my brother was five, we did this. I don't remember ever talking about this. There was a consistent three-year age gap between this younger brother and me. And all the things we supposedly did were on a large rural farm. Now, between the ages of zero and seven, we only ever lived in major metropolitan areas. My immediate family never lived on a farm. I asked my mom about it because it was weird. She said she always brushed it off because I was an imaginative little kid. I was always telling stories, and I really wanted a younger brother. She said I stopped talking about it around the time my actual younger brother was born, when I was six. She said there was one time that I said something that really kind of weirded her out. One time I apparently said, When I was twelve and my brother was nine, I fell out of the tree near the silo. It hurt really bad. Buzzy went to go get Mama, but when she got back, I was dead. 
I don't remember ever saying this. My mom said I was really nonchalant, and when she asked me about it, I wasn't bothered. I just said it again like it was a fact. My mom said that my brother was born a few months after that, and I never mentioned it again, so she let it go. She wrote it off as me trying to get attention with a new sibling on the way. Flash forward about three days, and my mom's mom and stepdad are there for Christmas. My mom's stepdad married her mom when my mom was in her late 20s and I was a baby. My mom didn't grow up with him, and so she doesn't really know his extended family very well. So there were a few glasses of wine, and then back to the baby videos. One of them has me mentioning my brother again. And so my mom retells the creepy story from earlier. Her stepdad goes white. My mom knew that he had a sibling pass away when he was young. I had never heard that before. His oldest sister, Shirley, passed away when he was nine. She was three years older than him. They were raised on a grain farm in Iowa. They had been playing, climbing on a tree, and she fell headfirst out of that tree when her foot slipped. My mom's stepdad was right there when it happened. He went to get help, but she passed away from the fall. The part that not even my grandmother knew? His sister couldn't say his name. And when she was little, she mispronounced it as Buzzy. No one called him that after his sister died. He got really mad at me and was convinced that someone had told me and that five-year-old me from the video was messing with him. I had no idea he lost his sibling. My grandma is the only one in our family who knew all the details about it, but even she didn't know about the nickname Buzzy. I have no memory of telling these stories as a little kid, and even seeing all the videos hasn't helped me remember it. My mom and I haven't talked about it since. And my mom's stepdad hasn't talked to me at all since that night. Okay, so before we get back to my favorite reason for the season, you know, what I was talking about before our little story break, uh, let's further delay that perfect segue by giving you some creepy news. As far as creepy news goes right now, it's really all about the monoliths right now, isn't it? You've most likely seen news about them, but in case you haven't, let me catch you up. Three long vertical pillars of metal, 10 to 12 feet tall, have appeared in various locations mysteriously, and then vanished. The first one was found November 18th in the desert of Utah's Red Rock country when a helicopter flying overhead noticed a flash of metal and went to investigate. This canyon 
where the monolith was found is remote and not easily accessible without a helicopter, although not impossible. Now, it would feel very on brand for this mysterious slab of metal reminding people of the alien monoliths from 2001 A Space Odyssey to appear in 2020. But because of some Google Maps Earthview investigating, people found out that it looks like this monolith was installed sometime between 2015 and 2016, but it was only just discovered now, in 2020. But soon after its discovery, it vanished, mysteriously, on November 27th. Who took this monolith? Aliens? Well, no. The mystery of who took it was solved, actually, rather quickly when a man ventured to take some pictures of the monolith only to discover three men appear all of a sudden and dismantle the monolith, leaving the site with the words, don't leave a trace, coming from their lips. Who were these mysterious men? Government workers? Alien hunters? Well, once again, this mystery was solved rather quickly when base jumper Andy L. Lewis and adventure guide Sylvan Christensen released video they filmed themselves of them dismantling the monolith, claiming although they weren't happy about having to get rid of the art, the environment and ecosystem of the canyon was fragile and wasn't prepared for a horde of monolith gawking tourists to come and visit. However, the same day they dismantled the Utah monolith, another monolith appeared in the countryside of Romania. While the original was perfectly shiny and smooth on its sides, this new monolith was covered in looping lines and had a welded seam toward the base. The mayor of Piatra Nimt, I have no idea if I said that right, but the mayor of that place where the Romanian monolith was found, joked about how he was sure it was just some alien teenagers who stole their parents' spaceships and were dropping monoliths all over the world. He didn't share the same concern as Andy Lewis and Sylvan Christensen and actually hoped the monolith would attract tourists. However, this monolith also disappeared only four days after it was discovered. Who got rid of that monolith remains a mystery. And on the same day of that monolith's disappearance, another one appeared at the top of a hiking trail on Pine Mountain in California. About the same size and the same triangular prism shape as the other two, its surface was more similar to the smooth sides of Utah's monolith. However, this one had not been planted in the ground like the original. A day later, that monolith was removed I don't say disappeared this time because a group of men live-streamed themselves removing it after having driven five hours wearing camo night vision goggles and Trump garb, chanting, America first and Christ is king. One of the men said in the video, Christ is king in this country. We don't want illegal aliens from Mexico or outer space. They tore the monolith down and put a wooden cross in its place. So, no mystery there. Just some racist idiots. 
Now, the monoliths have gained a lot of social media attention and, of course, have received the meme treatment. Southwest Airlines tweeting that they needed their divider back that they used to have people line up, according to number, you know. Someone turned the monolith into a drive through speaker from McDonald's. People tweeting that monoliths have appeared in their apartments with pictures of their dogs standing upright. The internet's got jokes, people. So... While the disappearance of two of these monoliths have been explained, where the Romanian one went, well, that remains unsolved. And who put them there in the first place is the biggest mystery. No one has taken credit for that. There are, of course, many theories. Since the materials used in all three monoliths have varied, some people speculate that the Romanian and Californian monoliths are simply works of copycats. I've seen people suggest it's some sort of crazy marketing campaign for a new movie or something, but since the original monolith was presumably erected in 2015 or 2016, that seems unlikely. A popular theory suggests that it may just be a leftover prop from the shooting of the HBO show Westworld, which shot close to that area in Utah. The strongest, most likely theory is that the Utah monolith was a work of an artist, and their work was copied for the other two. But who was the artist? No one has claimed credit. That could possibly be because people believe it may have been the work of John McCracken, who died in 2011. His signature works were his planks, freestanding slabs of metal that he would lean against walls, which he used to say himself that he believed his planks influenced the design of the monoliths in 2001 A Space Odyssey. But with McCracken dying in 2011 and the monolith being erected, presumably in 2015 or 16, it's hard to piece that theory together. Unless he left some secret posthumous instructions for its installation. Also, David Zwinner, who represents the McCracken estate, initially said he believed it to be McCracken's work, but then retracted his statement upon closer inspection as McCracken worked with his hands and the Utah monolith was clearly machine-built. I love the idea of this being John's work, he says, but when you look closely at the photos of the Utah monolith, you will see rivets and screws that are not consistent with how John wanted his work to be constructed. Now, McCracken himself believed in aliens and modeled much of his work after what he imagined to be alien artifacts. And of course, this alien theory is one of the favorites and certainly the creepiest amongst those on the interwebs. It's most likely the reason the monoliths caught fire online in the first place. I find it a little hard to believe that so many people would care so much about a slab of metal made by an artist, but the mystery behind it, the possibility of it being a gift, a warning, a sign from those watching us from amongst the stars. Well, it's very 2020. And while the idea seems far-fetched, it's certainly not impossible. I've seen posts from people on social media with cryptic messages like, they're coming, I'm ready, or the world is about to change. 
What were these galaxy dwellers trying to tell us with this monolith? Or were they not trying to tell us anything at all? Something they simply left behind accidentally after one of their visits? Or is there just some artist somewhere giggling into their hands, grateful their work has finally achieved its purpose in creating not just national, but worldwide discourse? Maybe there's even a more basic explanation for it, beyond an alien or even an artist. For now, it remains a bit of a creepy mystery. Speaking of aliens, here's another story about a UFO encounter from Tammy in Rochester, New York. My UFO. It was the late 90s, and I lived in Pavilion, New York, with my husband and our two daughters. I was heading upstairs to my bedroom to put some clean clothes away. It was around 9 p.m., a dark night. I was starting to put the clothes away in the drawers when something caught my attention out of the periphery of my eye. It was something in the night sky out the window. I moved closer to the windowsill to get a better look. At first I assumed it was a plane. But upon a quick examination, I realized that it was not. Maybe a helicopter? Not one that I've ever seen. It was dark, but I could clearly see the outline of this object in the sky. It was hovering. Not moving, just hovering. It was round. Not like a sphere, but round like a saucer. I know that sounds cheesy, but it's true. There were lights evenly spaced around the circumference of it. I just kept staring at it while my mind was trying to figure out what it was. After a moment, I got the feeling like it was staring back at me and chills ran through my body. I just knew it saw me looking at it. All of a sudden, it shot off, straight off into the distance. Now my thoughts were running wild. I, I was thinking it must have been a UFO and it saw me and it was going to come back and abduct me. I was afraid to tell anyone about it and I didn't until many years later. I'm not sure what it was that I saw that night. Maybe it was an alien spacecraft, and maybe it wasn't. But it was definitely a flying object that I could not identify. So I can safely say it was an unidentified flying object. My UFO. Okay, so first of all, in the time it took me to record that story, another 
monolith has appeared. This one in Pittsburgh, in front of a candy shop called Grandpa Joe's Candy Shop. This one, however, is clearly just a marketing ploy to get people to come to the sweet shop. Nothing too mysterious about it. But I like it. It's fun. Okay, and I'm popping back in from the future, which for you listening will be the past, but for me right now, it's the present. Anyway, um, now there have been even more monoliths discovered, one in Britain, one in Albuquerque. Um, There's been an artist who has not quite claimed credit, but is selling what very much looks like these monoliths on his website. Um, Who knows what's going on, but I for sure can tell you, I'm sure there will be even more news that uh, I won't have time to update. So probably what you heard about the monoliths from this podcast will be outdated by the time you actually get to listen to it. Sorry. All right. So let's go back about 15 minutes ago when I was talking about the concept of being naughty or nice and the reward of being nice or the punishment of being naughty, a traumatizing concept to a child. But one legendary creature is all about this reward and punishment system. He is the reason for the season, the one, the only, Krampus. Krampus. I love him. (laughs) Krampus is a companion of Saint Nick, but he's the opposite of Santa. Krampus is a tall, menacing, horned, half-goat, half-demon of Central European folklore whose sole purpose is to punish all the naughty children during the Christmas season. Just like Santa, Krampus also carries a sack, but instead of toys, if you're naughty in Austria, you don't get coal. You get thrown into Krampus's sack and taken away. Unlike in America, where Santa deals with both good and bad kids in these European countries, Santa only concerns himself with the good children and leaves Krampus to take care of the little devils. Krampus' appearance has many variations, but most of them include being very hairy, having cloven hooves, goat horns, a long pointed tongue, and fangs to devour all the naughty children, of course. He is sometimes known to carry chains or bundles of birch, both used to discipline children, either swatting them or locking them up. You know, I only discovered Krampus maybe nine or ten years ago, and I can't believe I missed out on so much Krampus during the first two-thirds of my life so far. I think the first time I discovered him was on Facebook. Someone had shared a 12-minute video of Krampuslauf on Krampusnacht. Much like Devil's Night, the night before Halloween, Krampusnacht, or Krampus Night, on December 5th every year, is celebrated the night before the Feast of St. Nicholas on the 6th. On Krampusnacht, which is tonight, the night I happen to be recording this, by the way, Krampus is known to appear on the streets and visit the homes and businesses where naughty children can be found. And depending on the city or town you're in, there also might be a Krampuslauf, which is what I saw the video of. A parade of Krampus. Krampuses. Krampi. Don't know the plural of Krampus. There's only one Krampus, though, so. (laughs) 
I should say a parade of Krampus imposters. A parade of Krampuses, growling, howling, and marching through the streets while onlookers gather and cheer and scream. Think a Halloween parade, except occasionally in the snow, in a European village, and everyone in the parade is a hairy, horned demon beast. I watched that whole 12-minute video. It was fascinating. Hundreds of different interpretations of Krampus, and each one has put 120% effort into their costumes. Not like America, where you throw on some ears and you say, I'm a cat. I am a dog. I am a pun of some sort. No, they put effort into their costumes for Krampus love and Krampus not. So some of these Krampuses go over to the crowd and they begin to grab people, dragging them into the parade as if they were going to take them back to their lair. I saw one grab a kid out of their mother's arms. They're <laughs> it's all in good fun. The mom was smiling about it. And even the kids are squealing in delight and fear as Krampus comes up to them, shaking its chains or hitting its branches on the ground. I, you know, I once had a conversation with my barber, George, who grew up with some of these Krampus traditions, saying it was indeed a big thing over there. Parents who were sick of their kids' antics would sometimes hire people or ask friends or a relative to dress up as Krampus and come over to their house and start banging on the door until they let him in, and then they chase their screaming child around to scare them into being good. I mean, that's kind of awful. But also, I can't help but giggle a little bit about it. <laughs> you know, I less like the kids getting terrorized and more love the, you know, parade aspect and the folklore of it all. Plus, the depiction of Krampus has generally gotten a little tamer in recent years. Krampus cartoon, or Krampus greeting cards, have been passed around since the 1800s, often with Krampus' famous saying, Gruß vom Krampus greetings from Krampus. And also sometimes humorous sayings or poems are on the card as well. And while the older ones depicted Krampus as being super scary and frightening and menacing and sometimes sexualized, lusting after buxom women, the more modern depictions of Krampus are sometimes almost cherub-like and cute. Krampus has found his way into the mainstream, with appearances on multiple TV shows, including one of my faves, American Dad, as well as his very own feature film in 2015, of which he was the titular character. Krampus, starring Tony Collette and Adam Scott, tells the story of an extended American family, dysfunctional and squabbling as they come, who has gathered together for Christmas. The Christmas spirit is severely lacking within this family, and even young Max loses his Christmas spirit, having written a letter to Santa. But after confrontations with his conservative aunt and uncle and bullying cousins, he tears up his letter to Santa and throws it out the window, which seems to cause a major blizzard to roll in over his house and neighborhood, signifying Krampus's arrival and snowing the family in. Now before we meet the menacing figure himself, he has sent his demonic, frightening toys, and the family has to fight for their survival in this winter horror land. 
Get it? Like Winter Wonderland, but Winter Horror Land. It's thrilling, fun, and often hilarious. And it's, it was actually able to achieve real scares and a sense of dread as well as having solid humor. I, I loved the movie. And it's become a bit of an annual tradition for me to watch it. 9 out of 10 snow-covered pumpkins from me. So yes, Krampus is the reason for the season for me. He's big, he's hairy, and he's here. And if you have children... You may not want to go overboard with terrorizing them, I suppose, but it might be fun to add Krampus to your own holiday folklore and traditions. And even if you don't, Krampus might just come and pay you a visit regardless. Okay, so here are some more stories. Some more spooky, creepy Christmassy holiday e stories. Now, full disclosure, uh, they're from Reddit. These are not user submitted, um, but I just thought they were perfectly within theme for the episode. So I wanted to share them. And uh, if you happen to be the author of one of these stories, or I shouldn't say author since they are supposedly true, although, you know, with Reddit, you can never be too certain that they're true. Uh, but if one of these experiences happened to you and uh, you have a problem with me reading them on the episode, first of all, let me apologize. And second of all, um, I don't make any money, so I don't think you can sue me. But if you would like to sue me, uh, please don't. I'm sure I can re-upload the episode without your story. <laughs> anyway. With that out of the way, here are three creepy Christmas stories. Christmas shopping stories, to be exact. Now, these stories are all from the same post. I'm not entirely clear if they're from the same person. It'd be a little crazy if all these experiences happened to the same person, but I suppose it's possible. They could be from three different people. But the first one is called Customer. I hear a lot of scary shopping stories, and they're usually from the perspective of the person who is shopping. However, my scariest experience happened when I was working at a bookstore. About two months after I was promoted from bookseller to assistant manager, we were hit by the Christmas rush. It was always so overwhelming, really. By the end of the night, everyone was so wiped out. And getting all the receipts and drawers counted at the end of the night took so much time. On the nights that I was closing, I let the workers go as soon as they were done. There was no reason to make them stick around and be tired while I was finishing up my work. After I let everyone go, I went back in the office to do my work. After a little while, I heard the doorbell ring. We had security cameras, but there wasn't one at the door, so I had to go to the front door and see who it was. There was a guy there, and he was dressed in dark clothes and had his hood up. I asked him how I could help him, of course watching through the door. Hey dude, I left my wallet in your store, 
he told me. Can you open the door and let me come in and get it? I asked him where he thought he left it and that I would look for it for him. He didn't like that idea, and he told me he wasn't sure. He supposedly had been shopping through the entire store and would have to look for it himself. I asked him if he had bought anything, and he told me yes, which meant he had to have his wallet on him at that point of checkout. I pointed that out to him, and he seemed taken aback. I told him we didn't get anything turned in, but I could take his information and get back to him if we find anything. The man began getting angry, telling me that he needed his wallet tonight and he couldn't wait for me to look for it. He kept insisting that I let him in so he could look for it. When I told him that there was no way I was letting him into the store this late and while I was alone, he began getting visibly angry. He told me that if I didn't let him in right away, he would call the police and tell them that I stole the wallet. He even got his cell phone out of his pocket and acted like he was going to call. At that point, I had had enough. I told the guy the best I could do for him is take his information and call him if anything was found. I then told him that if this wasn't good enough, then there wasn't anything at all that I could do for him. He just got really angry and began swearing and yelling at me. He grabbed the door and began shaking it, demanding that I open the door. I told him I was going to walk over to the customer service desk and call the police. I wasn't willing to cooperate with him anymore. As I made my way over there, I noticed the guy take off down the street. I figured that must be the last I saw of him, and I didn't bother calling the police after that. I went back to my work and tried my best to get it done so I could get home and get some rest. It took me about two hours to finish all of my work. I hadn't heard the doorbell ring again and pretty much figured that I was good for the rest of the night. However, when I was going to the front of the store, I did look around to see if anyone was in the parking lot before I went outside. I was a little nervous. I went out to my car in the cold and I couldn't wait to just get in my car, get out of the cold, and get home. However, I froze when I was maybe within a couple feet from my car. There was someone in the back seat of my car. He was hiding down on the back seat with his hood over his head, but there was definitely someone in the back seat of my car and I knew exactly who it had to be. Furthermore, he must have seen me or he wouldn't have ducked. I did the only thing I could think to do. I turned and ran at full speed back into the store. I didn't look back around until I made it to the door, and yes, he was coming for me. I unlocked the door quickly and shut it behind me. He made it to the door right before I could lock it, so I had to do my best to hold it closed while trying to turn the lock. As I did, the man screamed all sorts of obscenities at me, telling me he was going to kill me. As the door opened outward, I quickly pushed it toward him, knocking him on the ground. Before he could realize what had happened and recover, I was able to get the door closed and locked. I ran to the phone and called the police. The guy left after the door was locked, but the police picked him up pretty quickly. 
Second story. Shopping at home. I really wanted a PlayStation 4 when it was originally released. I tried everything to get one as quickly as possible. The local Best Buy was having a Black Friday sale and I stood in line waiting to get one. I was nowhere near lucky enough to actually get one this way, so then I tried getting one online. As much as I wanted one, the people on eBay and Amazon who were reselling them were asking way too much and I just couldn't afford it. After several days of trying my best to find some way to get one, I'd come to the conclusion that it just wasn't going to happen. It was then I thought I came across a bit of luck. Going through Craigslist, I found that someone was selling their PlayStation 4 and at no more than the original buying price of the system. I, of course, was skeptical. I couldn't understand why they would do that. Also, I figured as in demand as the system happened to be that someone would have had claimed it right away. I immediately emailed the seller and let them know that I was very interested and hoped that they still had it. I was surprised to get an immediate response that they did still have the PS4 and they would still be willing to sell it to me. They asked for my address so they could bring it over. I was sort of hesitant and asked if it would be better to meet in public. I wasn't too keen on the idea of someone coming over to my home. He let me know that he was going to be very busy all day and that he couldn't keep an appointment in public. It would be much better if he came over to my house. I was still not really ecstatic about the idea, but I really wanted that PS4. I agreed and gave the guy my address. I figured it was safer than me going over to his place. This whole exchange took place about 9 a.m. I was so happy and so excited to finally get my PS4. My eagerness only grew as I began waiting for the guy to show up. But then hours passed by, and I began to think that he just wasn't going to come. Around 2 p.m., I had gotten really impatient. I tried emailing him, asking him where he was. Earlier in the morning, he had gotten back to me very quickly, but I didn't get any response this time. Around 6, I had just lost all hope. I figured that most likely he got a better offer from someone else and didn't want to tell me. I was disappointed, (laughs) more than I could even possibly tell you. It's one thing to not have gotten the item from the store. I could come to terms with that, but I was so close to having one in my hands and I didn't get that PS4. And that was the scariest thing to ever happen to me. Just kidding. (laughs) For the rest of the night, I kept looking around on Craigslist to find a new PS4 that was in my price range. I couldn't find anything... And before I knew it, I had wasted the entire day, an entire night, with this search. It was past midnight, and I just I had nothing to show for the day. I got ready for bed, and that was when I heard something. At first, I dismissed it, thinking it was just my imagination. Then I heard it again. Someone was knocking at my door. I walked up to the door, and looked out the window. There was a guy standing there, and I asked who he was. He identified himself as the guy who had the PS4. 
he apologized for being so late and told me he had gotten caught up during the day. He asked if I had the money. I opened the door but kept the screen door closed. I told him I had the money but I didn't see that he had anything with him. I asked if he brought the PS4 with him. He told me it was out in his van. He told me to get the money and come out to the van with him and he would get it for me. I let him know that I really wasn't comfortable walking out to his van and he told me that it was alright. I looked over his shoulder and saw that someone was in the van, waiting. This man had kept his hands in his hooded sweatshirt pockets all the time while talking to me. There was something more than just his hand in that pocket. I told him I'd go get my wallet and then come back. He protested it as I closed the door in his face, and then I locked it. This obviously did not feel right, so I went over to my phone to call the cops. As I did, I heard a loud hit on my front door. Then after a few moments, I watched the van drive away really fast. When I went to check and see if he had damaged my door, I nearly fainted as I saw a knife embedded in my door. I was right that he had something in his sweatshirt. And I was right to not go out to the van with him. And here's the third story, Black Friday. Normally I don't go out Christmas shopping on Black Friday. I know there are deals to be gotten, but the actual amount of people who get them is pretty low. It sometimes seems that more negativity comes out of it than anything else. I did go out on Black Friday once, and honestly, the experience kept me from ever even considering doing it again. This was a few years back. The big Christmas gift that year was a game called Uno Attack. It was supposed to sell out pretty quickly, and my nephew really wanted one. So I decided for the first time ever to brave the Black Friday crowd and see about getting one. I waited outside the store in line for it to open. The entire time I kept wondering why people were so fanatical about doing this. It was cold, and although I was reasonably bundled up, it didn't help that I had to spend so much time not moving. In addition, people were in terrible spirits which seemed to take away the spirit from the holiday season and the event in the first place. Some people would try to cut in line, which only made people already in line even crabbier than they were. When the store was getting closer to opening, I noticed that there was someone from the store headed out and talking to each person in line. When they got to me, I realized he was handing out tickets, indicating who would be able to buy an Uno attack game. He asked me if that was why I was there, and I told him yes. He told me I was lucky then because I was getting the very last ticket. Of course, this caused some groaning and swearing from the people behind me. Although I hated the idea that there would be a lot of children who wouldn't be getting the toy that they wanted, I personally was elated. That was until this guy got out of line and walked up to me. He came up immediately after the worker left. He first offered to buy the ticket from me. I told him no, because it it wasn't a matter of money. It was me trying to make my nephew happy. 
He then started telling me that his son really wanted the toy. I countered with letting him know that my nephew also really wanted the toy. When I kept refusing, he started telling me other stories, such as his son was really sick, but I could tell he was just doing his best to make me feel guilty. From further back in the line, a few other people began telling the guy to leave me alone. He got into a shouting match with several of them. Eventually, the guy stomped away, but not before telling me, I'll get that toy. I tried to push it out of my mind. I was able to go in, I claimed the Uno attack game, and did some more shopping. I figured that since I had spent so much time outside waiting that I should try to get as much done as I could. When I was done doing my shopping in the store, I went back out to my car. I put all the toys in the trunk and then I walked over to the bookstore in the strip mall in order to get some more items. When I began walking back to the car the second time, I paused when I noticed the man from earlier was leaning on my car. I began feeling tense, knowing that the guy was going to confront me again. He was much bigger than I was, but I decided I couldn't let him intimidate me. As I got closer to my car, he noticed me and he smiled. He reached into his pocket and I assumed he was reaching for his wallet. But it only took a moment before I saw that it was a pocket knife and he flipped it open. I stopped in my tracks. I couldn't imagine the guy would be stupid enough to try and threaten or stab me in a busy parking lot. But I didn't want to test that theory. So I turned and quickly ran back into the store. I let the security know what happened and they gave me an escort out to the car. The man was gone, but I was still shaken. I was more shaken when I noticed knife marks on the lock for my trunk, and the trunk was dented. There were also deep scratches in my driver's side window. I never went out on Black Friday again. Okay, so I wasn't even planning on talking about my next subject here, but my sister sent me this article, and I've got to at least talk about her for a second. Not my sister. Her. Like Krampus, there are different Yuletide, winter, Christmas beasts, monsters, and ghouls from folklore all around the world. And another one of the major ones is Grilla, the Christmas witch from Iceland. Mention of her is found all the way back to the 13th century. She's an ogress witch with a horned tail who lives in a cave and is the matriarch of many a creepy creature whom she calls family. With her family, she plunders villages and, like Krampus, snatches up naughty children. But Grilla turns these misbehaviors into a stew, which she gobbles up. She's had a couple husbands over the years, the first of which she got bored with, so she ate, naturally. Also in her family are her 13 Yule lads, large adult menacing men, each with a different job, like stealing toys or stealing other things from the villages, spying on children through the windows, and reporting on their naughtiness to their mother so that Grilla can come and snatch them up to devour. There was also the Yule cat, who targets anyone who doesn't have any new clothes 
thus cementing an Icelandic tradition of putting a new pair of socks or long underwear on the Christmas list. The threat of Grela was certainly used to keep children in line, but she was so terrifying that in 1746, the Icelandic government made it unlawful to use her legend as an intimidation tactic, although that's probably not very well enforced. Although Grela hasn't quite made it as much into the mainstream as Krampus, Icelandic children are still terrified of her to this day. And she has made a couple appearances on Netflix's The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, which premieres its final season on December 31st, by the way. Before Grilla's connection with Christmas, she was initially just associated as the personification of the threat of winter. The threat of snow and darkness consuming the land. This end-of-year winter looming kind of reflection is most likely why we have scary ghost stories and folkloric traditions that we now associate with Christmas. It's only natural that when nighttime consumes more than half of a day and the year is coming to a close that we instinctually want to gather together, reflect on the past year, things we've gained, those we've lost, what lies ahead. The ghosts of our year the ghosts of our past, our present, and our future. Christmas, before its connection with Christianity, was actually connected to the pagan winter solstice celebration known as Yule. The winter solstice, which occurs right around our modern Christmas every year, is the darkest day of the year. The day with the longest night. And naturally, that's a time when the dead would have easier access to the realm of the living. Because of all this, Christmas time was the time to gather and tell ghost stories. The talking of spirits usually fueled by the consumption of spirits. Families would invite friends over to tell ghost stories, exchanging tales instead of gifts. Now, the American Puritans began to frown upon such talk, however, and the practice began to lose its fervor. The commercialization of Christmas didn't help either, but fragments of Christmas spookiness still remain, perhaps reinvigorated in recent years. Christmas Carol, which we've talked about, of course. And how can I not mention the nightmare before Christmas? And even It's a Wonderful Life. All spooky Christmas stories that deal with death and specters. There's been a surge in people celebrating Witchmas, or a combination of Halloween and Christmas in recent years, still putting up trees and welcoming Santa and gifts, but also including Halloween colors, or some skull ornaments, or this year, dressing up their new 12-foot skeletons, which I'm jealous of, in Christmas lights or Santa outfits. There's a magnetism to the spooky and macabre, that this time at the end of the year attracts, even as holly jolly songs and bright decoration fill our eyes and ears. It's palpable. You can't ignore it. As humorist Jerome K. Jerome wrote in 1891, whenever five or six English-speaking people meet around a fire on Christmas Eve, they start telling each other ghost stories. Nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve but to hear each other tell authentic anecdotes about specters. It is a genial, festive season, and we love to muse upon graves 
and dead bodies and murders and blood. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Well, that's all I got for you for this very special holiday episode of October State of Mind. I hope you all learned a little something spooky. I did. I actually really did. Remember, if you have a creepy or spooky true story to share or any spooky poetry, please send it to rickyosom at gmail.com. I need more stories. I'm okay with doing some internet searching for stories, but it's always better when they're submitted rather than poached. If you enjoy this little bit of spooky fright added to your holiday season, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave me a five-star rating and a nice review. I really appreciate it every time I see someone has taken the time to do that for me. It warms my heart during these cold months to know people like what I'm doing. You can follow along at osom podcast on instagram facebook and twitter or follow me personally at ricky a schroeder i hope everyone stays safe and healthy this holiday season and i hope santa treats you right but make sure to keep watch out your windows you never know what pair of eyes might be watching you back they could be elves one of grilla's yule lads or Krampus himself. Make sure you're not being too naughty now. And with that, sleep tight, everyone. Don't look under the bed. And happy hauntings. <laughs>